Well, hey, good morning, City Light. Good to see you guys. My name's Austin, one of the pastors here, and so excited to dig in God's Word with you all. If you're new here, this is your first time. Uh, our kind of standard is that we walk through books of the Bible kind of verse by verse, looking at Jesus and, uh, and practically applying that to our lives. What's that look like um, on an everyday level? And so, uh, so excited that you're here. If it is your first time, I hope you enjoy it and uh, learn more about Jesus. And so um, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2. You can open up your Bibles there if you've got them. If you don't have a Bible, we've got free ones as you walk out the door for you. You can take, you can grab one now or take one on your way out. Those are our gift to you. Um, but as you're getting there, as Hebrews 2, um, kind of think of when, when's the last time that you benefited from someone else's sacrifice? Can you think of that? Last time that you benefited from someone else's sacrifice. Well, if I'm like, I can think of so many times, right? Like every time I get a paycheck, I'm reminded that you guys have given sacrificially and generously, so I get to do what I do. And when I come home after work, my wife, Kristen, has an amazing meal for me. And I didn't cook it. I didn't make it. I didn't set the table, but she did. And so I get to benefit from her sacrifice and working hard. Uh, I get to worship Jesus freely and openly. We get to do this. I get to take my daughter to the park because there's men and women overseas that are fighting for that freedom, right? So many examples of how I've benefited from someone else's sacrifice. But among those many instances, uh, I can't help but think of my mom, right? Uh, My parents got divorced when I was young. And uh, I lived with my mom in Southern California until I was about 12, and then moved to the Promised Land, McCook, Nebraska, after that. And uh, it's been great ever since. I'm a Nebraskan through and through. But anyways, um, growing up with my mom, uh, I just remember her working as a CNA and going to nursing school as well, and just working so hard. And I had no idea, you know, but we always had a meal. We always had a roof over our head, and we'd be in an apartment, whatever, just her and I. And uh, it was beautiful. And um, I remember before school would start, she'd take me shopping, and we'd get all these new outfits and all these new clothes, and it felt like we could literally get whatever we wanted. You know, I could ever, I get whatever I wanted, and I didn't realize, looking back, I didn't realize that times were actually really tough. Like, we were living paycheck to paycheck at certain times, and, and uh, maybe she would sacrifice eating so that I could, or eating as much. I mean, there's just the, or she wouldn't buy stuff for herself, so she'd buy something for me. I mean, it's crazy, you know, buy me cleats for my baseball uh, thing, but she wouldn't, she couldn't get an upgrade on her. I don't know what it was, but she sacrificed so many things and guarded me from the pressures that she faced. Like she sacrificed. I had no idea of any of it. And looking back now talking to her, I'm like, dang, I didn't realize that. Um, if you had a moment like that or a person like that in your life that just seems to consistently sacrifice and you just benefit from it. Well, in our verses today in Hebrews 2, we're going to see sacrifice after sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, all of these things that he gave up, all of these things that he suffered, and all the benefit we get from it. I mean, as we look around in our lives and what we have and what Jesus has given us, we didn't work for them, we didn't earn them, and yet we freely have them. And so this morning, I would just love, as we look at these verses, for our hearts to explode with gratitude as we see the, all that Jesus has done for us. Amen? So that's where we're going to be this morning. I'm excited. Let's read the first three or so verses 10 through 13. Uh, Hebrews 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. And so our first point, this this. Uh, first point this morning is that Jesus left heaven to bring us into his family. Jesus left heaven to bring us into his family. Now, uh, as I've been walking with Jesus for a little while now, I've, I've just realized that I'm tempted to fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus is the only person at play in the gospel, right? 
like the, Jesus is the only, like he's the only one we need to mention when we're talking about the gospel. Um, but the gospel doesn't only involve the work of Jesus. It also involves the work of the Father and the Spirit, right? In other words, the gospel is Trinitarian. And so that's what verse 10 is drawing our attention to. Yes, Jesus is our hero. Yes, he came. Yes, he lived a perfect life. Yes, he died. And yes, he rose again. And that's glorious, but it was the Father's plan right? Like, like Jesus could, I mean, like he's responding to the Father's plan in that. So the Father sent his beloved son, Jesus, to die for broken sinners like you and I, so that we could have life. And then the Spirit softens our callous hearts to actually believe that is true, right? So that's how the Trinity works in the play of the gospel. The Father's plan, the, the Son carries it out, and the Spirit allows us to believe it. And years ago, I met a man uh, that was really new to Christianity, and he's wondering, hey, what's this all about? Uh, kind of just kind of answering questions, and I I, um, I asked him to imagine going to the the jail in Omaha. It was when we lived in Omaha, and 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 going through and reading the rap sheets of all the criminals, right? So you've got murder and rape and drug dealing and abuse and theft. And you just go down the list, right? The rap sheet of all these men that are that are guilty and and at the time he had his son is about two years old they look identical it's amazing and uh, i just asked him hey would you ever consider um substituting your son for those men and uh, like i mean honestly just kind of picture you you taking your little son and and bringing him to the prison and and walking through and finding a cell uh, you know a cell and opening it up and and, and pushing your son in there and at, telling the guy hey you come here you're going to be free and pushing your son and say hey son good luck you're going to serve the rest of the sentence could you imagine that and and he i mean anger i mean he was like no i'd never do that why well, because my son is innocent, because I love him, because those are guilty people, and they deserve to, he, my son doesn't deserve that. And my response is, this is exactly what God did for you. I mean, God sent his only beautiful, perfect, beloved, innocent son to die for guilty people, people like you and me. And he, Jesus came to pay for our sin, the sin that we committed. Jesus came to serve the time that you and I served. This is the gospel. The father gave up his son for you and I, and I love, I absolutely love that, that the author calls Jesus the founder of our salvation, right? Founder is another word for pioneer. And so it's kind of this idea of someone going before us and paving the way, right? Making it possible. It's never been done before. That's what a pioneer is. And in 1804, President Thomas Jefferson sent Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to explore the land west of the Mississippi, okay? So Lewis and Clark go out, set out, unknown, right? What's going to be out there, right? We, we don't know. There's going to be danger involved and paving new roads and all these things, and they made it possible for us to be in Lincoln, Nebraska, right? And then beyond, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And, um, and in the same way, but to an even greater extent, Jesus pioneered salvation for us. It was impossible for a holy God to be in relationship with sinful people, and Jesus pioneered that, right? He came and made that possible, and so Jesus came, endured danger, suffered hardship, battled and suffered, but he pioneered salvation for us. It's amazing. This is the gospel, friends. And if you're wondering what you should as you read the text, what does it mean by making Jesus perfect? I thought Jesus was perfect. Like, that's why he could die for us. Um, when, it when it says that he was made perfect through suffering, it's not referring to Jesus like wasn't perfect before the cross. Uh, Jesus preexisted before the world ever was created, has and always will be perfect in righteousness, right? Never sin. What it means by made perfect, that word perfect, is, is another word for qualified. So in other words, Jesus became qualified to be the founder of our salvation 
through suffering, right? And so in order for Jesus to save you and to save me, he had to suffer, right? You track with me? This is what had to happen. So that's how he was made perfect. That's how he was qualified to be that for us. And so as we think about Jesus suffering, I'm sure a lot of things come in your mind, but maybe one of the primary things is the cross, right? Jesus suffered and died on the cross, which is true, but I want us to kind of expand our mind out to how much Jesus suffered for us. Um, imagine it. Uh, Jesus, in order for him to bring us into his family, had to leave heaven, right? Like in order for him to bring us to glory, Jesus had to lay aside his glory and come to us. And so uh, Jesus, the eternal son of God, um, was hungry, was thirsty, was tired. I mean, this is crazy, friends. The creator of the universe willingly became dependent on the creation. This is what Jesus did for us. And so he went through growing pains. He was beaten and mocked. He was mistreated. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He was spit on. Like the, the, the God that created the glands in our mouth to actually salivate was spit on by someone he created. Like, to think about that, right? Like, that's how much he suffered. How different was his experience here on earth than it was in heaven? How much did Jesus have to sacrifice to be the pioneer for our salvation? And then verse 11 says that he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and the ones he sanctifies, that's us, all have one source. And just to be clear, that one source is the Father. It's, it's his plan, right? And it says that because of that one source, because we have that common source, it's why Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. Now, raise your hand if you, are, uh, if you have younger siblings. Just shoot your hand up if you've got younger siblings. Okay, I have, um, I have yeah, the ones you didn't, you don't understand this, okay? Uh, so you're not part of this illustration. But anyways, or you are, but you're on like the not good side. But anyways, um, Man, I've got two. I've got a younger brother and sister, Bailey and Caden. They're amazing. Bailey's going to graduate this year. I think she's going to come to UNL. Just one homecoming queen. She's amazing. I love her. That's so proud of her. My brother, Caden, he's wild, and he's still kind of in his awkward phase. But nonetheless, I love him. But I remember there was this season where I just like, honestly, uh, I just wasn't super like, I wasn't like raising my hand to admit that they were my brother and sister, okay? When they were in their awkward season, my buddies and I were driving, and I see my brother at the park. Like, I don't know what he's doing, but he's by himself. They're like, is that your brother? I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, you want to get ice cream? I'll buy. You know, kind of like, hey, I, I don't really know. But, but I mean, if, if, you've, if you're an older sibling, I'm sure you've had moments where you're like, I don't want to claim you as my brother or as my sister, right? It's happened. And if you're the younger brother or sister, I'm sorry to break that news to you, okay? God bless you, right? It's true. But, but it's not true with Jesus. Jesus has never felt that way about you. He's not ashamed of you. He is happy and proud to call you his sibling, to call you his brother or sister. It's amazing news. And so like, to be clear, every single one of us have, have done shameful things. Right? Like every single one of us are guilty of things that we wouldn't want to admit or put on the screen today, right? And all of those sins, all those skeletons in our closet, Jesus knows about them. They're not hidden from him, and yet he joyfully says, you're my family. I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. I'm not ashamed to call you my sister. I absolutely love you. And, and it might be weird, and just thinking about, I mean, I know we're used to calling Jesus our Savior, right? And so it, it kind of sounds weird, to be honest, to call him our brother. Like, is that okay? Like, can, you know, it just feels weird. And so just to kind of explain that, um, verse 10 says that God is bringing many sons to glory. Okay, so there's sons to glory, and so uh, meaning that he's bringing them into it. So we were once orphaned. We were once messy. We were once broken. And Jesus came and suffered to make those lost orphans, a.k.a. you and me, found adopted children of God. 
okay? We were orphaned, we were gone, we were broken. Jesus came, suffered, brought us into the family. And so now we're adopted and we can call God our father. That's an amazing privilege. You can call God your dad. And so Jesus, through his gospel, is inviting us, broken, lost people, into calling his dad our dad. That's what we can call Jesus our brother because we have the same dad, right? We have the same father because we're adopted into it. So it's actually beautiful to think about that. And then verses 12 and 13, he quotes Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. Now, these are Old Testament passages that are written before Jesus came to earth, but they're beautiful because they point us to him. They show us that this has been the plan all along, right, for Jesus to come, to invite his brothers into knowing Jesus, to invite, or into knowing God, to invite his brothers into a relationship with a loving God, and that we, be, uh, we get to become children of God. It's glorious. All right, to recap. We were outside of the family of God, right? Orphaned without a way to be adopted, but Jesus left heaven, came to earth, suffered, was the pioneer of our salvation, and now we can have a relationship with God. This is amazing, glorious news that by placing our faith in Jesus, we can enter into God's family. And so we kind of know that. Our first few verses, we're saying, hey, through Jesus, we can be in the family of God. And then now in our next couple verses, we get to see how that happens, how specifically that happens. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. All right. Uh, oh, I was only supposed to read to 15. Anyways, Jesus died. Um, to deliver us from death. Jesus died to deliver us from death is my second point. And so verse 14 says that uh, we, since we were flesh and blood, Jesus partook in the same things, right? So just kind of logically, to save those who were flesh and blood, Jesus had to become flesh and blood. Um, he put on skin and bones, became a man. The eternal son of God entered into humanity and shared our same experiences that we go through and we faced and yet remained perfect and spotless through it all. So track with me. This is crazy because this has been a, uh, a disagreement, a theological point where people have just, what is this exactly? Jesus, fully God, simultaneously became fully man, right? He didn't give up one for the other. He was fully all the time, fully man and fully God, Jesus incarnate. Jesus is God in a bod, okay? That makes sense, right? That's the easy way to explain the incarnation, right? Um, but, friends, he didn't just come as a man to hang out, right? He came on a mission. He came on a mission that none of us could accomplish on our own. None of us could do on our own. He came to defeat two enemies, two primary enemies, okay? The devil and death. And so let's start with the devil. Um, verse 14 says that he came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And so, uh, real practically, if you were sent on a Rambo mission to defeat the devil, okay, or any great enemy, how would you do it? Um, kind of thinking about that, my wife and I, a couple nights ago, she like screams and yells, I need your help, I come, and I'm thinking like something crazy happened, there's a spider, okay, in the bathroom, all right, okay, and so I bravely grabbed that flip-flop and I smashed that thing, okay, night-night, like it didn't even have a chance, I just kind of walked away, like, come on, you know, my wife's like, dang, you're brave, I don't want a medal of honor, I'm just saying, it just happened, okay, but if I'm, if I'm God, I'm like, that's what I want to do to Satan. I'm just going to smash that dude with a flip-flop. Like, grab your divine flip-flop, God, and smash him to the ground, okay? And walk away and say night-night, all right? But anyways, this is what I'm thinking, right? This is the normal way. I mean, we fight wars with that in mind. Like, you need to kill. But look how different Jesus' tactic is. Look at verse 15. 
It says, or verse 14, it says, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Jesus's tactic to destroy the devil was to die. Rather than killing, Jesus allowed himself to be killed. This is wild. And so think, I, I just, this is, this is crazy, but I just spent time thinking this week, think about the cross, the whole, that whole season through there from the devil's perspective. I mean, seemingly, Jesus is against the ropes, is he not? Like, like he, I mean, seriously, all of his, almost all of his disciples have abandoned him. Only John is left. All the other dudes are hiding, locked away, afraid, don't want to face persecution. The people where they're once singing, Hosanna, 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 are now throwing uh, stones in. They're just done with him. They, they're cursing him. They're, um, I mean, all that stuff. Jesus was beaten so badly that he had to be, he had to help, uh, get help carrying the cross I mean, the nails really do pierce Jesus' hand and his feet. His energy is slowly dying. He says, hey, John, take care of my mom. I mean, if you're looking at the scenario, you're thinking Jesus is surely about to die. Like he's closing up shop. It seems like he's about to die. And I can just imagine Satan drooling in excitement as the hero of heaven is about to die right? He's slowly fading away. And then the moment comes when all of our sins are poured onto the shoulders of Jesus. The, apples of, the apple of God's eye is now stained with our sin. Though Jesus was perfect, spotless, blameless, he took on our guiltiness, our sin on him on the cross. So he became our sin, um, lust, coveting, lying, uh, murder, rape. You just name it. Jesus became that on the cross, the apple of God's eyes became rotten with our sin for us. I mean, took on the rottenness of our sin. And then Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I can just picture the, the Satan and his army just clapping and cheering, just so excited that, that, that the father turned his face away from Jesus. He's alone now. And then Jesus, the God man, the one who raised people from the dead, that healed blind eyes, that multiplied loaves and fishes, that walked on water, that taught about God, that Jesus breathed his last breath. I mean, his lungs no longer were pumping oxygen. His heart was no longer pumping blood. His brain stopped sending neurological signals throughout his body. Jesus Christ really died. And then Satan and his army are holding their breath as the Roman soldier pierces Jesus' side to ensure he's dead. And he was. He was. The devil had finally won. I mean, he actually pulled it off, killing the Son of God. And I can just imagine those next three days, Satan walking around just prideful and smug in his victory, thinking, I finally did it. I finally took you down. I finally killed the hero of heaven. And then the unthinkable happens. His lungs expand with air. Jesus' heart starts pumping blood again. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus raised from the dead. He wins. Jesus wins. The devil pulled out every single stop he had, landed every single punch he could on Jesus. And guess what, friends? Jesus was victorious. This is, this is beautiful that he would do that for us. And just think about just devil's perspective. What just happened? thought he was victorious, and Jesus came and stomped him through it. Through death, he would destroy the devil. To be clear, City Light, the devil's primary goal is to keep us separated from God. 
Okay, do you say, my goal is to keep you separated from God. And so he reminds us of our sin. That's one of the primary ways he does it. So he convinces us that we're unlovable. He convinces us that we're not valuable. He convinces us that God would never want to pursue broken people like us. And let me just tell you, if you're in the room and you would raise your hand and say, that's me, I feel like that. That's a lie from hell. That's not true about you. You are valuable. You are loved. You are cared for. God loves you and is crazy about you. And so just to say that's a lie if that's where you're standing right now, to think that God feels that way towards you. And Jesus proved it, right? We've all fallen into those tricks. We've all believed those lies about ourselves. We've all fallen into it. And so how did Jesus defeat Satan? By dying in our place by taking those sins that Satan throws at us and accuses us of and nailing them to the cross. Jesus, one, defeated Satan by giving us his perfect righteousness so Satan's accusations no longer land on us. We're perfect in God. We're perfect in Christ. Amen? That's amazing news. Satan is now powerless to separate us from God. He can't do it anymore. Jesus proves God does love you. Jesus proves you are valuable, and Jesus proves absolutely nothing will get in the way between you and God. Nothing can separate you. For the ones who've placed their faith in Jesus, nothing will separate him from us. And you might say, Austin, that all sounds good. Thanks for saying that. But I don't know if you've looked at the news this last week. I don't know if you've turned on your TV. I don't know if you've seen all the disagreement and all of the evil. And if you look back and all the war is still going on, and all the if you looked at sex trafficking right now and how prominent. No, I, I, how can you say that the, the devil's defeated? He's, he's obviously prowling and he's obviously at work. Yeah, I have seen that. And my heart is broken over that. But to be clear, Jesus is ultimately victorious. But we don't see all the victory yet. And so to kind of wrap our heads around, heads around what that means and how did Jesus defeat the devil, picture the devil as a stubborn chess player, okay? If you're familiar with chess, you like that. On the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus took down his queen. Well, he's done. You know, he's got all the valuable, the valuable pieces, but Satan as a stubborn chess player is making Jesus take every last one of the pawns until he finally admits defeat. He's done. He knows there's no way to swing this to win, and yet he is making Jesus take every last pawn. And in the final resurrection, when Jesus comes back to make everything right, that's when he knocks down the king and the devil has to admit final defeat. Jesus puts the devil and his army away forevermore. There is no more evil, no more tears, no more death, no more destruction, only life and abundant relationship with God. That's the day we look forward to. Amen? Jesus defeats the devil. And the second enemy that, that Jesus defeated is death, right? So you have the devil and then death. And verse 15 says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, I don't, I don't want you to raise your hand, but honestly, how many of you are afraid of death? And I don't want you to just write it off theologically like, yeah, we don't have to be afraid. I want you to actually like internalize, am I afraid of death? Does it have a grip on me that I'm fearful of it? Maybe you're afraid of the pain or, or when it will happen, or maybe you're afraid that someone that you love will die. I don't know what it is, but I can relate, right? Like, it's, it's, it's serious. There is a fear that's attached to death. Death is the most frightening thing we could face apart from the gospel, right? So I get it. Where will you go? What will happen? Is this the end? And the author describes the fear of death as lifelong slavery, that's powerful language, and we've all fallen into it, right? And so in light of this, I think there's three ways to view death. There's three ways to kind of approach this. And the first 
is that we can fight to prolong death, okay? Fight to kind of avoid it, avoid it happening. And so this is the tireless effort to look young, to preserve yourself from anything too dangerous, to be constantly ruled by the thought of dying. And I've faced this too, but there's an anxiety uh, about your loved ones dying. And you think, could the next call be a disaster? Can the next call be the news that I've never wanted to hear? Could it happen? I mean, we're one phone call away from that, right? So your biggest fear is cancer, or your biggest fear is heart disease, or some other thing that would impede you from moving forward and would question your life. Your biggest fear is old age, and so maybe your solution is strenuous workout routines to try and stay uh, in shape and stay alive, and that's awesome. But the problem with that is that you can't control when you die. You can't control when your loved ones die. Some of the healthiest people in the world die. So working out is good. Do it. Awesome. But it will not stop the inevitable. Fighting to prolong death is a futile effort to control that which you cannot control, right? It's a frantic search, a restless pursuit that ends with a disappointing reality. That's the first option. Second option is to ignore that death is coming. And so uh, I've seen this play out. I think all of us do it in some way, especially maybe the younger generation, but we can live like tomorrow's guaranteed, right? I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm good. I don't need to think about the end. I don't need to think about death. I mean, ignorance is bliss, right? It's just easier to not think about death or the end or anything. I'm just going to enjoy my YOLO, you know, just kind of this thing of like, I'm not even going to focus on death. And, and yeah, you can do that. But the problem is that death is inevitable, I mean, you can't escape it, and ignoring that it's coming is like putting off your taxes. Like, you're going to eventually have to face the facts, right? It's going to happen, so ignoring it doesn't solve the solution of death. Trying to prolong it doesn't, so, uh, prolong it doesn't solve the solution, or is a solution, because you can't. You could die unexpectedly. So the third option, and the one I would encourage you to take, is to trust that Jesus defeated death. Every single one of us will die. I'm sorry that that's the encouraging word of the day, but every single one of us will die. We can't avoid it. A certain diet or workout routine may prolong it, but you eventually will die. And so here's the good news, friends. Here's the good news in light of all that. Jesus came to free us from the fear of death. Jesus came to free us from this lifelong slavery of trying to control that which we cannot control. Jesus defeated death. And so on the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus proved he has power over death. So for the people in the room that has trusted Jesus, death isn't scary. Like I may, I know theologically, I mean, we like agree on that, but even emotionally to kind of get to that point, it's not scary. It's saying, man, if I die, I get to be with Jesus. Like I, it's, it's not the end. It's the beginning of an even more intimate, full relationship with him. If you're sick or you have something going on, it's this beautiful way where there's no more tears, there's no more hurt, there's no more sickness, there's no more bullying, there's no more disease or disaster, there's just life with Jesus. That's not scary to get to that. It's beautiful. And so this is what, the, this is what Jesus frees us to. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, it says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus defeated death. And so, friends, we don't have to be afraid of it. We can go into it with confidence. And then verse 15 assures us, oh, by the way, Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for Abraham's offspring. And if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, you're thinking like, okay, that sounds great. You know, I'm, I'm going to go past that verse and get to something good, right? But actually, it's, it's beautiful. Back in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. 
And this covenant was to bless him and to multiply his family exponentially and to uh, use him as a blessing to the nation. It's a, it was a, this commitment was, it was a relational commitment between God and Abraham's family. So in other words, y'all want to be in on this, okay? And, uh, and so you're wondering, okay, verse 15 says that Jesus died for Abraham's offspring. Well, who are those offspring, right? Well, Abraham was Jewish. And so on a real practical level, in order to qualify for Abraham's offspring, you would think that you just have to be Jewish to qualify. So raise your hand if you're Jewish in the room. There's one half-raised hand in the back. I don't know what that means, but that's not good news, okay? Even for the happy in the back, like, I don't know if that fully qualifies you. Uh-oh, what happens to all of us that aren't Jewish? You know, what do we do if we aren't from that lineage, if we don't have Abraham as we're actually like his physical offspring? Here's the good news. Galatians 3, 29. I think it'll be on the screen. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. When we place our faith in Jesus, when we're Christ's, we become Abraham's offspring, which means that we're part of the covenant. So we get everything good that was promised to Abraham. This is all the point back to who Jesus defeated death and the devil for. For us, for those who had placed their faith in Jesus. And so we know that Jesus left heaven to bring us to the, into the family of God. We know that Jesus left heaven to come and he defeated death and the devil in order to bring us life. Friends, the gospel is big enough to solve and tackle the, most, the biggest problems in our lives. But we'll see that the gospel is also sweet enough to deal with our day-to-day -day temptations, right? Let's look at the last couple verses, 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. My last point is that Jesus suffered to help us in temptation. Jesus suffered to help us in temptation. And so in these verses, we see that Jesus helps us in two primary ways. Two primary ways Jesus helps us. And the first is that he helps us when we're tempted. He helps us when we're tempted. And so uh, I work out with Nate Morgan, if you know him, been one of my best friends for over 10 years. Um, he's on staff as our city group's pastor, amazing man. Um, uh, oh yeah, and by the way, he's a collegiate like national champion wrestler, okay? So he's kind of a big deal, all right? And, uh, and so we hang out and work out a couple times a week. I know you can't tell, but it would be worse if I didn't, you know? And so anyways, we work out, we get up early, and it's so funny and it's so painful because he's like constantly wanting to do pull-ups. And I'm like, dude, that's the last thing I want to do. Like, let's work on abs. I'm trying to get this right. You know what I mean? Like, um, and uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to Mexico soon or something. I'm like, let me get this right. And so he's like, no, let's do pull-ups. And I'm like, dude, you don't understand. Like, you're varsity D1 athlete. I'm like, didn't make the team Juco. You know what I mean? Like, that's the difference between us. And you're trying to get me to do the same thing as you. I can't. And you're, tw I'm 20 pounds heavier than you and not as strong as you. And so anyways, we go back. It's my excuse, right? And so one day he puts on this belt thing on him. I'm like, what are you doing? And he puts a 30-pound weight on it, okay? So he's 30 pounds heavier. He jumps up on the pull-up bar and does 15, no problem. And I'm like, I'm so frustrated right now. <laughs> and I'm impressed, you know? Like, it's like how I always feel around him. He's so, you know? And so, um, but, but, but in the same way that Nate um, put on that extra 30 pounds to experience what I faced, Jesus came on, took on flesh and bones to experience what we face. And, and I've had dark times in my life, and I'm sure you have too, and seasons that are difficult and hard, and I felt myself kind of push God away. Like, like um, just to say, you don't really know how I feel, 
You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like to be tempted and under the pressure of sin and temptation. And, and have you ever felt like that? Where like the last person in your sin or in your temptation that you want to run to is God because he, has no, he doesn't understand? These, verse 17 is saying that Jesus became just like us. He put on flesh and bones and subjected himself to the same temptations that you and I faced, and yet he remained perfect, right? And so it's encouraging because he does actually know how we feel. He does understand what it feels like to be tempted and tried day after day. And then verse 18 says that since he suffered and was tempted, he can help us when we're tempted. And so this is the good news. Not only can he relate to our temptation, but he can help us fight it, right? Back in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil. And so he comes, he's tempting him several times with all this, the gambit of things, right, going back and forth. It's a one-on-one matchup between Jesus and Satan. And every single time Satan tempts him, Jesus pushes the lies back and stands on God's word, right? It's amazing to see his resiliency and his commitment to God. And so we can look to Jesus for how to overcome temptation. He's our older brother that's gone through it before and says, hey, let me help you through it. I've been through this before. I know what you're doing. I know how it feels. Watch me and work with me and, and, and see what happens. And, and so it's amazing, right? But if you're anything like me, I don't primarily need an example of how to fight temptation. I primarily need a savior for when I give in to temptation, right? Like that's what I need, maybe even more. And, and this is where it gets even better. The second way that Jesus helps us is when we give in to temptation, right? So he helps us when we're in temptation, and he helps us when we give in to temptation. And so look at the second part of verse 17. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. All right, to give us a little bit of Old Testament background, uh, a high priest uh, was kind of a mediator between uh, man and God. And so sinful man was, uh, was broken, and God is holy. And so um, in order to pay for their sins and kind of atone for their sins, they'd bring sacrifices. The high priest would perform the sacrifices in order for the people to have their sins forgiven. So that's what happened. That, and it says that Jesus is our high priest, right? Which is amazing news, that he's our better high priest. And then it says that Jesus is making propitiation for our sins. Um, now, that's a big word, kind of hard to pronounce. On the count of three, I want all of us to say it. Okay, one, two, three. Not bad. Not bad. I'm proud of you guys, you know. My buddy Ben got it this at the eight. I was pretty proud of him. And so, um, anyways, it's a glorious word that you need to know. Propitiation uh, it means payment. It's, it's, it's a payment. And so every single one of us have a debt before God, right? We have sinned. We've all consistently disobeyed God, and therefore we have a debt to pay before him, right? And the way we pay, would pay that back if we were to pay it, is to spend eternity separated from God in hell. I don't know, if, I don't know about y'all, but I'm like, is there a different payment plan? You know, can I get a different financing? Like, I don't want to choose that option. And praise Jesus, there is. There is another option. After coming down from heaven and living a perfect life, Jesus never gave in to temptation. Jesus always glorified God, and Jesus died the death that we deserve. He paid for the sins that we committed. That's what it means for Jesus to make propitiation for our sins, to actually make the payment that we deserve to pay, that we should have paid. This is the gospel. And if you're in a season um, where, where you feel like you're just consistently giving into temptation, if you're in a season where you just feel powerless to the pressures of sin, 
If you're in a season where you feel just helpless to actually fight and you feel like you're falling more than you're fighting and you're standing, I mean, all that stuff, I've been there. I've absolutely been there and I'll probably be there at another point in my life, definitely, right? I'm a sinful man that's been redeemed by Jesus. And you will too, right? Where none of us escape that pressure to fall into temptation and sin. Um, but if that's you, the solution to that isn't to read a self-help book on five ways to kill that sin. That won't do it. Maybe temporarily, but not, 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 not for the future. The, the, the way you escape temptation and fight temptation is not to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just commit to being a better person and not doing that again. No, that will not work. If you want to really fight temptation, you only need to remember one thing. Are you ready for it? Jesus perfectly fought temptation for you and I so that whether we fight or give in, we are infinitely and unconditionally loved. That's what you need to know in order to fight temptation, that Jesus perfectly fought it for us so that whether we give in or we fight, we are unconditionally and infinitely loved by God. This is amazing. I remember I was 19 years old, and I was fighting my hardest to not look at pornography again. I mean, on a, a, kid, a friend had introduced it to me when I was young, and I'm just battling to not look at it again. And it felt like it had this grip and this control on me, and so I'm fighting, and I don't want to look at it, and all this stuff. And I remember one night, 19 years old, one night, it felt like Jesus so clearly spoke to my heart and said, Austin, next time you're in front of that screen, whether you look at it or you don't, I'll love you either way. I'll love you either way. Friends, next time you're about to text that girl or guy and meet up with them that you promised you never would, remember that Jesus loves you either way. Next time you're about to lash out in anger to a person you love or walk away in bitterness, remember that Jesus loves you either way. Next time you're about to lie or promote yourself, remember that Jesus loves you either way. City Light, I've never known a love like this in either of you. This is the kind of love that changes us. This is the love that looks us in the face, knowing full well all of our sin and all that we're capable of, and says, I love you either way, unconditionally and infinitely. I love you either way. It changes us. It compels us. That's the kind of love that freed a 19-year-old punk from a pornography addiction. That's the kind of love that could change you and free you and compel you to fight temptation and to run to Jesus. That can do that. That love can do that. For you. It's the kind of love that compel you to shut your computer. It's the kind of love that compel you to love rather than to hate. It's the kind of love that compel you to fight rather than to give in. But either way, he loves you. We fight our sin because Jesus fought for us. Jesus left heaven to bring us there. Jesus died so that we couldn't have we wouldn't have to die. We could have eternal life with him. And Jesus was perfect in temptation. So even when we fail, he loves us. What a brother. What a savior. What a friend. Amen? Let's pray.